Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series this week, Jesus Goes Global, The Missionary Enterprise, with the message titled, The Council of Jerusalem. So turn in your Bibles to Acts 15, verses 6 to 11, as we join Dr. Neufeld now. I don't know if you've been to a church congregational meeting, and if you have, I wonder whether you like it or not. See, I have a few memories of church meetings as a much younger man, and they were raucous affairs, leaving not a few people feeling emotionally raw and, in the end, not having accomplished a lot but to divide people unnecessarily. I came to the conclusion that I didn't like the kind of an open mic meeting that allowed anyone to make whatever statements they wanted. But then I've watched as church business meetings became more streamlined and where very little was said about the affairs of the church and concentrating power into fewer and fewer hands. And I came to the conclusion that that also was not a good turn of events. See, it turns out that there are all manner of pitfalls on every side. If we make everything into a public discussion, well, I assure you the rancor will continue and no conclusions will ever be reached. But if, on the other hand, decisions are placed in just a few hands, I'm just as assured that the old adage will prove to be true that absolute power corrupts and that it corrupts absolutely. You know, does the Bible give us any indication of how the early church dealt with this tricky matter? For if you think about it, you would know how important this matter was. We've all heard stories of power-hungry leaders in local churches and the damage that's done to the reputation both of the church and to the witness of the gospel. But we also know that it doesn't make the news, but it's equally dangerous. You know, when a local church simply becomes a democracy, it loses its focus and it ends up in decline. I say it doesn't make the news, but it's equally deadly to the effectiveness of the gospel. Now, as we've been tracing Paul's first missionary journey, we have noticed that, as Paul puts it, God has opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and that consequently, a great number of the Greeks and others were confessing their sins and they were coming to faith in Christ. But we've also noticed that this wonderful success came at the cost of confusion. Converted Pharisees had traveled to the church in Antioch, teaching that unless these Gentiles were circumcised in order to keep the law of Moses, they they, they couldn't be saved. And as we discussed this turn of events, And I had said that most likely this argument came from the heart of Pharisaic concerns. Because of the history of the Pharisee movement, the issue was that Israel had suffered in the past under the chastening hand of God because they had not been faithful to the law, they'd abandoned the law. And whatever else were the errors of the Pharisee movement, they were right on that point, that failure to keep the law had resulted in the Babylonian captivity and the burning down of the temple. God had been angry with his unfaithful people. But these converted Pharisees, I mean, from that insight, argued that judgment would fall on the church if the male converts were not all circumcised. And as we've seen, Paul and Barnabas had taught the opposite. They taught that genuine faith in Christ was all that was necessary for salvation. And clearly, had this state of affairs been allowed to carry on, it would have resulted in a breach in the early church You know, on the one hand, Pharisaic Christianity, and then versus Grace Christianity, or some sort of thing like that. Kind of like the first ever denominational split. But rather than a disagreement on a minor point. See, this was a disagreement at the very heart of what it meant to be reconciled to God through Jesus. 
how is this matter to be resolved? You know, one way to do that would have been for there to have been a church vote. I mean, every local church would freely vote. What would have been their theology? And then they would have all agreed that they would respect the right of others to disagree. I, I think in our day, that's exactly how we would have resolved it. See, but the early church thought that truth mattered, especially the truth about what was at the heart of the gospel. They thought if you're not clear on this thing, then many, many people will go into eternity and be condemned. This state of affairs should not be allowed to carry on. But as we've seen, who has the right to make a decision on this matter? Or who has the right to be the purveyor of truth? Now, when we last left our study in Acts, we had Paul, Barnabas, and others going up to Jerusalem to present their case, and the Pharisees who were already there arguing their case to the church. We left with the understanding that a meeting had been called in Jerusalem. So let's pick up our study now from Acts chapter 15, verse 6, which simply says, The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So it's clear a council has been called in which this matter would be thoroughly heard so that the matter would be understood and that there would be a definitive conclusion on this matter. Now, two important questions. Just who was there? And then later on, we're going to have to discuss how they reached their conclusion. There are some who would argue that the council must have met for many days and that there must have been three separate meetings. So they say the first was the meeting in which Paul and Barnabas and the delegates from the church in Antioch were welcomed. And then second, there was a meeting, the one we're going to read about today, that, that is in which the theology of salvation was discussed and debated. That would have included the apostles and elders, and I'll come back to, to that in just a bit. And then third, that at the end, another much larger assembly would have gathered. And they get that from verse 12, where we read that the entire assembly, which you know, would then include James and perhaps even the entire congregation of the Jerusalem church. Well, to some extent, that's just speculation. The assembly that's mentioned in verse 12, where Luke writes, the entire assembly fell silent. And listen to Barnabas and Paul share their experiences of their missionary journeys and all that God had done among the Gentiles. That meeting surely does seem like a congregational meeting gathered to worship and hear the mighty acts of the Lord. So I must say, we actually don't know. You know, was the entire assembly there, given the right to watch the debate and then later gathered again to hear stories? Or was the debate only among the elders and the apostles? We don't know, but I suspect, you know, that every believer was invited to watch, but the debate was among the apostles and elders. As to who the apostles were, well, that's straightforward, isn't it? Up to now, chosen by Jesus, they were his spokesmen. Of course, by that time, there weren't 12 anymore. We know that Judas, the betrayer, had hanged himself. We also know that the apostles had made a decision to replace him with a man named Matthias, who had also been an eyewitness of all that Jesus did, but who must also have been directly trained by Jesus. But we learned in Acts chapter 12 that the apostle James had been killed by Herod. And so the number had been reduced by one at this time. And by the way, as a note of explanation, if you're reading your Bible, please don't confuse James, the one who's the half-brother of Jesus, with James, the one who's the apostle of Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus, came to believe in Jesus after the resurrection. Eventually, he becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And as we put it today, he was the senior pastor there. At any rate, all I wanted to address here was to simply identify the apostles. 
I've not yet made a statement about Paul's apostleship. I'm going to leave that to the end when we discuss what Paul wrote in Galatians. But who are the elders? It seems that the elders must have been the elders of the church in Jerusalem, along with the elders that came to Jerusalem from the church in Antioch. You know, putting that in our terms, that means all the people who served as pastors or shepherds and overseers. The leaders of the two principal churches that were most involved and that had shown the highest degree of spiritual maturity were there at this meeting. In other words, there's no indication that this was an open free-for-all in which everyone, no matter their standing, got a chance to speak. But I think the meeting was open in which all could observe. All right, so much we know. Now, who was there and why this special council was called? No one person called all the shots. The leadership of the church gathered together to discuss among each other. Now, let's take this slowly. The the first several words of verse 7 says, and after they had been much debate. Now, we're not sure how long this part of the meeting lasted, but it would seem that not all the elders of the churches were on the same page, but they were all given the right to strongly voice their opinions. It must have looked chaotic and confusing at the beginning. The idea of much debate means that there are profound differences of opinion and there was an open clash of ideas. In short, the apostles must have agreed to let these various opinions be openly discussed, for if they had not, the apostles could not have known the nature of the church at that time. See, unless people are given a forum to freely express their opinions, those opinions will go underground. And if that were to occur, soon rumors would begin, and those rumors would be about who had the right to call the shots. In the end, it wouldn't be a discussion about truth anymore. We'd have a discussion about power and who has the right of control. So there's wisdom expressed at this council. But the wisdom of the day does not mean that this meeting is just an airing of differences and then everyone goes home. You see, no one who thinks that truth is important would let it come to just that. We're praying that 2022 would be a year that you'd experience the fellowship of the Lord like no other. We believe earnestly to do this means to commit ourselves to prayer and to the reading and study of God's Word. So we want to encourage you to make a commitment to read through the Bible this year. There are so many resources available that can assist you in achieving this goal, including Dr. John's reading plan, available at backtothebible.ca or printed in our bi-monthly Truth in Life magazine, and it's free just for your asking. Whatever resource you choose, your commitment to reading the Bible every day will allow you the opportunity to know the God of the Bible as never before. For more information about Back to the Bible Canada, its resources, or to support this ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Let's continue to read about what happened at the Council of Jerusalem. So I'm reading now Acts 15, 7-9. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
You know, I've in the past pointed out that when Luke quotes a sermon, or in this case, you know, a speech or a theological treatise, that Luke gives us an abridged but accurate synopsis of what was said. It's a shortened version. See, I notice also that Peter didn't speak until the debate had been well engaged. He didn't involve himself in the debate. He listened and he spoke at the end. He begins first by recounting how it was that this assembly had come to this point. And Peter then recounts the remarkable encounter with a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. Peter had been in prayer when God sent him a vision of unclean animals being lowered down from heaven on a sheet with a voice from heaven saying, take Peter, kill and eat. And Peter was greatly disturbed as to what that vision might mean. But at that moment, a group of men showed up at the house where he was staying, men who had been sent by the Roman centurion, who had seen a vision, a man who was hungry to know about Jesus and his gospel and what the events of Jesus actually meant. Now, I'm of the opinion that most of the assembly of the council in Jerusalem was more than familiar with the events that Peter was describing. But Peter's not recounting them for old time's sake. He's recounting these events because in all the debate, some of the believers in Jerusalem had forgotten just how significant is the leading of the Holy Spirit. And then notice what Peter says. He says that God made no distinction between these uncircumcised pork-eating Gentiles and us. Just like the Jews, when these Gentiles repented of their sins and they believed on Jesus, their hearts were cleansed by faith. Now, now please, don't skip over the last part of that statement. Peter says he cleansed their hearts by faith. That is, these uncircumcised Gentiles, they were forgiven of their sins. They were reconciled to God, not through the law but by faith. And as we will see, that is precisely what Paul will then write to the Galatian churches. Here I'm quoting Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And that's what Peter said to the council at Jerusalem. These Gentiles were justified, that is, their sins were forgiven. They were cleansed before God through no other means than by faith. They believed and they were cleansed. The law added nothing to that. And then Peter's not finished. Notice now verses 10 and 11. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now, a note of explanation here is it's very important in understanding what Peter's just said. When Peter called the law a yoke, he's using language that all of his hearers would have understood. See, the rabbis of that day regularly referred to the law as a yoke. And so please understand that calling the law a yoke is not necessarily a negative thing at all. To be yoked to the law meant that one was tied to God's will for a lifetime. Just like a yoke was used to tie two oxen together so that they'd work in harmony, and that produced a power to, you know, pull a plow or a wagon, so being yoked to the law, that allowed a person to be so yoked to the will of God and in harmony with God and live under God's blessing. Again, all Peter's hearers were very familiar with the image of the law being referred to as a yoke. 
But what they were unfamiliar with was the idea of a yoke that was so heavy that the forebearers were unable to bear it. In other words, the kind of a yoke that the Pharisees placed on the people of Israel was not just a yoke. It was an oppressive yoke, a hard, unyielding, and unmanageable yoke. Several things would immediately spring to mind. I mean, for one, Jesus himself had used the image of a yoke in a positive fashion. I mean, you might remember that in Matthew eleven twenty nine to 30, where he said, Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. See, the yoke that Jesus was speaking about is the yoke of learning from him, to humble ourselves, to come under his instruction, allow him to direct the affairs of our lives. And that is a yoke, said Jesus. It ties you to me in such a way in which we're eternally tied together. But then, as we know, Jesus made a promise, didn't he? The yoke that he offers will never become oppressive or hard. It will remain a welcome yoke, a delightful yoke that his followers would most gratefully bear. Now, the other image of a yoke found in the New Testament is, yeah, you guessed it. It's in the book of Galatians. And here Paul uses it just like Peter does. Galatians 5 verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And there, the yoke of slavery is the yoke of the law. Okay, now here, we have to come to terms with what's meant by the law. Now, for instance, should we think that the Ten Commandments are the yoke of slavery, or that yoke was so heavy that the forefathers were unable to bear it? Well, to answer that, let's go back to the issue that first started this conversation. It was found in Acts 15, verse 1, and it said, But some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so what was under discussion were some very specific matters concerning the law, not the whole law itself. Now, I have been greatly helped by thinking of the law as consisting of three different divisions or aspects of the law. Let's say that the first division is the moral law. And here we might think of things like, well, the prohibition of worshiping idols, the law against adultery, laws against theft and lying, and the command to keep the Sabbath. I mean here, the things that are at the heart of the Ten Commandments. Now, when it comes to these things, it's clear from Galatians and from Romans that the moral commands of the law do not release us from our sins. See, the law may point out where we've sinned, but it's helpless to release us from these sins. Now, I suspect that the Council of Jerusalem didn't discuss this important matter of the law. The second aspect of the law is what we might call the ritual aspects of the law. And here I'm referring to the sacrificial temple ritual. And clearly in Christ, all need for sacrifices and offerings are taken away. But again, well, there's no indication that in Peter's speech that he's speaking about the sacrificial ritual. So clearly, Peter has in mind, well, the need for male circumcision, but he's also concerned with kosher food laws, all manner of other requirements of external purity. You know, as an example of the last group, you know, think of the law forbidding you from touching a dead animal or a dead person, or the law concerning, you know, male uncleanness following a seminal emission, or female uncleanness after a woman's monthly flow of blood. I mean, there are numerous laws that deal with things like this. So why are these laws given? Well, they were given for a number of reasons, but one of the key reasons was to make Israel a distinct nation, different from all the other nations on the earth. 
Initially, these kinds of laws were given to stop Israel from mingling with the nations. But now that Christ has come, and with that had come the command to make disciples of these nations, all such laws that were unique to Israel's national life had to be abandoned. They were the wrong kind of yoke. They constitute a yoke of heaviness in which people are constantly rendered ceremonially unclean and then must take all necessary measures to achieve ritual cleanness again. And Peter's making a point that it is a burden that God does not require now that Christ has come. And even should a Jew decide to carry on in such a yoke, it is unrighteous and ungodly to require the Gentiles to bear that yoke. Indeed, Peter clearly makes the point that we, that is, we Jews, will be saved only by the grace of Jesus, just like they, that is, them Gentiles, will also be. Salvation, Peter declares, is by grace, coming to us through faith in Christ and in Christ alone. To bring the law into that, it's just plain heresy. And Luke simply says, when Peter said these things, the assembly fell silent. See, all the human opinions had already been aired. But now, after the airing of human opinions, comes a sure word from God. The Council of Jerusalem makes a statement that truth, not human opinions, must decide the important matters. Thanks for your message, John. You know, I'm wondering, how do we, or or should we even balance our search for truth with how we feel or, or our own experience of life? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question, but I, I think at the very least we should be able to say that um, we should interpret what we are experiencing in the light of Scripture. Now, that doesn't put our experiences out of the picture. We should take our experiences very carefully in mind, but we should read the Scripture, then go back to our experience and say, in the light of Scripture, what does this actually mean? So, in so doing, um, you know, some people don't want to, you know, evaluate their own experience at all, and, and I think that's just simply not being honest. So let's find out how the Spirit has been leading us. Let's find out what we've experienced, but then let's not allow the experience to take us into a wrong direction. Read it in the light of God's revealed Word. Thanks so much, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, the missionary enterprise right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. We believe Bible teaching is critical for God's people, and your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Neufeld available on this station. But we know there's times when you may miss the radio program, so we want to remind you of all of the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series both audio and video with Dr. John, but also learn more about our ministry podcasts, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our desire is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is available to as many people in as many ways as possible. For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.